Well, unfortunately, the book of Revelation is often the source of much division and unhelpful speculation about the future. However, this book was meant to fuel obedience and perseverance in the face of present trials. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free gospel-centered, missions-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. In this message, based on the book of Revelation, David Platt shows us how Revelation brings the story of God's kingdom to its glorious conclusion. Viewing our own personal stories within God's larger story of redemption challenges us to live for a kingdom that is heavenly and eternal. Here's David with a sermon titled, The Story of All Stories from Revelation. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 1. This is it. At the beginning of February, we started this journey as a church, reading through the story of Scripture together, so going chronologically through the Bible to see how this book, made up of many stories, tells one overarching story. And that story comes to a climax in the book of Revelation. So today, I want to not only tie this story together, I want to show every single person within the sound of my voice how this story includes you right where you are sitting. My prayer is that when we walk away today, every single one of you would see your life as part of a much bigger story. That you will realize that you were made for more than what often feels like the mundane or even sometimes meaningless day-to-day of this world, that every one of you will realize that you were made to play a significant part in the story of all stories. And I pray that for some of you, today might be the day that your story changes forever. That a few minutes from now, some of you might find yourself putting on one of these shirts and being baptized, confessing your faith in the one who is at the center of history. So let's dive into the book of Revelation. Obviously, because of time, we're not going to be able to do an exhaustive treatment of this last book in the Bible with all the questions that come up as you read through it, questions that have confounded students of the Bible for years and unfortunately have divided Christians and churches from one another based on how people understand this or that, which is tragic because that's not the purpose of this book. God didn't give us this word to divide us or confuse us. That's why I put at the top of your notes, so on the back of your bulletin that hopefully you received when you came in, the book of Revelation is not intended to promote hopeless speculation about times and events in the future, which is what a lot of people think is the purpose of this book. That Revelation was written to drive us to all kinds of speculation and debate about when and where and how this or that will take place in the end of the world. But that is not why God gave us this book. Absolutely, Revelation speaks about the future coming of Christ and the end of the world, which has led, as we've said, to all kinds of questions and discussion throughout the history of the church. But that is not the primary purpose this book was written 
The book of Revelation is not intended to promote hopeless speculation about times and events in the future. The book of Revelation is intended to fuel hopeful obedience amidst trials and temptations in the present. Let me show this to you. Read the first three verses of Revelation with me. Revelation chapter one, verse one, says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Did you hear that last phrase? Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Which means that in order to understand this book, we need to start by putting ourselves in the shoes of the first people who heard it read. So imagine for a moment that we are in the first century. And as the church, we are facing persecution on all sides. Some of our church members have been imprisoned. Others have been killed. They've been hung on crosses, thrown to wild beasts, some beheaded for their faith in Jesus. And John is writing this letter to us from an island where he has been exiled because of his faith in Jesus. Which means that right where we live right now, we are facing all kinds of temptations to turn away from Jesus, at the very least to compromise our faith in him, and we're surrounded by all sorts of pleasures in the world, money, materialism, sex, success, and we are tempted to leave our faith to run after these things. And it's into this setting that God speaks through John to urge followers of Jesus to hold on to hope in him and to obey him amidst the trials and temptations around them. 10 different times in Revelation, the people of God are urged to obey the commands of God. And then you know what's interesting? When you get to the end of the book, turn with me over to Revelation 22. You get to the end of the book, it doesn't end with a vision of heaven. That's how you think Revelation would end if the book was primarily about the future, but that's not how the book ends. Look at Revelation chapter 22. After we see, yes, a picture of a new heaven and a new earth for God's people in Revelation 21 and the beginning of chapter 22, right after that, eight of the last 15 verses in Revelation call God's people to obey, to stay faithful, including a recap of what we just read in verse three. Look at verse seven with me. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see it? Same thing it said in the very beginning. The purpose of this book is not to promote hopeless speculation about the end of the world. The purpose of this book is to call people to hopeful obedience to Jesus today. That's the primary point. So when we read the book of Revelation, we need to look less at timelines about the end of the world and more at our lives right now. Are we faithfully following Jesus today? Or are we giving in to the ways of this world? Are we compromising our faith? And are we zealously proclaiming Jesus in light of judgment that is coming? That's what this book is about. It's written to make us look more like Jesus. 
and to proclaim Jesus with greater zeal to people around us in our city and among the nations. And the way it does this is by tying together the entire Bible. So this book is the climax of the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, and it contains over 400 allusions to the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. So it shows how the story of Scripture we've been reading ties together. So here's what I want to do. I want to pause at this point, and I want to recap all that we've read over the last 10 months in the story of the Bible. I want to show you one theme that I would say is central to that story. I want to show you that the story of Scripture is the story of a kingdom. Now, as soon as I use that word kingdom, I realize that imagery is somewhat ambiguous for most of us because most of us have not lived in a country where we've been ruled by a king as part of a kingdom. Or if we have lived in a country with a king, we may have all kinds of different impressions about what that means. So just to help with this imagery, I want you to think with me about three essential elements of a kingdom. So first, in a kingdom, you have people who are ruled by a king. So you have citizens, residents, members of the kingdom. And these people are subjects of the king. Then you have a place where the king has dominion. So where does the king rule? Where does the king reign? The king rules and reigns in the kingdom. So a kingdom involves a people who are ruled by the king, a place where the king rules over that people, and a purpose for the king and his kingdom. So what is the goal of the king for this kingdom? Any kingdom is going to have all three of these components. So let's think about the story of Scripture through this lens as a story of a kingdom in which God is bringing his people to his place for his purpose. So hopefully when you came in today, you also received a piece of paper with a chart on it that has kind of from the beginning, creation, all the way to the end, new creation. And this is my attempt to show you how all of Scripture ties together as the story of a kingdom. So some of you who are visiting today with a friend or family member, maybe exploring Christianity on your own, maybe you've never read the Bible, Today, I want to show you the overall storyline of this book. And even if you are a Christian, maybe you've read the Bible numerous times, that's been part of the point of this journey over the last year, to show you how it all fits together. So think with me about how the Bible, the story of Scripture, starts with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So think about creation in light of these three facets of God's kingdom that we just talked about. Think about people. In the beginning, we see God's blessing on his people as God creates man and woman in his image as the pinnacle of his creation. God is their king. They are his beloved man and woman created to know and enjoy God the king, to worship and walk with God the king, to experience perfect communion with the perfect king. God's kingdom, a people, and a place of perfect fellowship. So the Garden of Eden was a perfect place. Every relationship in it was perfect. The relationship between God and people was perfect. The relationship between man and woman was perfect. The relationship between people and the world was perfect. This is a blessed place and a place, blessed people and a place of perfect fellowship created for one purpose. God's glory multiplied to all peoples. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God creates man in his image. And then in verse 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Spread my glory through my image all over the earth. 
So at the end of Genesis 2, man and woman are married. They become one flesh together and the stage is set for God's glory to multiply through his image bearers. This is the kingdom of God as it was designed to be. God's people experiencing God's blessing and perfect fellowship with him in the perfect place where his glory is multiplied throughout the earth to all people. But then comes the fall in Genesis 3 through 11. And when the fall occurs, everything changes. Instead of only God's blessing on his people, only the blessing of the king on the subjects of the kingdom, now we see God's blessing and judgment through Adam and Eve. God had said in Genesis chapter two, if you sin, you shall die. Which is why immediately after Adam and Eve sin in Genesis three, we see the just judgment of the king upon his people. Even the fact that we still see his blessing is only because of the king's mercy. And because of his mercy, instead of man and woman immediately dying, the king brings death upon an animal, a sacrifice that covers over the shame of the man and woman in their sin. So we see both blessing and judgment through Adam and Eve, now in a place not of perfect fellowship, but of disrupted fellowship. And all the relationships that were perfect in Genesis 1 and 2 are now disrupted in Genesis 3. Man and woman's relationship with God is now filled with guilt and shame and fear and denial. Man and woman's relationship with each other is now filled with strife. Man and woman's relationship with the environment is totally different. They are cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God. Listen closely to the words of Genesis 3, verse 24. God drove out the man from the garden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember that imagery, a flaming sword separating man and woman from the tree of life, a picture of perfect communion with the king. Now, one day, man and woman will die. And not just Adam and Eve, but every man and woman after them will die as a result of sin in our lives. God's glory is now marred in all peoples. Every man and woman in history since Genesis 3, including every single one of us, is born with a sinful nature with a heart that rebels against God. This is epitomized in the flood in Genesis chapter eight and the tower of Babel in Genesis 11, all leading to the patriarchs in Genesis 12 through 50, where we see God's blessing and judgment through fathers of the faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the king calls a people to himself, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12, one through three. And God promises to bless him and to use him and his family to show his blessing to all peoples if Abraham will only trust in God. And this is the key from the very beginning of God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 18, and 22. Trust in God and his promises as God begins to lead them to a place of promised fellowship. Leave your country, God says, and go to the place, the land that I will show you. When Abraham gets there, God says, I will give you and your descendants all these lands. Then God makes the same promises to his sons, Isaac and Jacob. This land becomes the promised land where God will dwell with his people. He says over and over again, I will be with you 
And from this place, through this people, God will make his glory known to all peoples through his faithfulness to those promises. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says, I will bless you, and through you, I will make my blessing known to all the nations, all the peoples. You will be a conduit of my blessing to all the peoples of the earth. This part of the story, though, ends with the people of God, now the people of Israel, going to Egypt to escape famine in their land. So Genesis ends with the God's people in a foreign land, holding on to God's promises, which sets the stage for the exodus and conquest, from exodus to the first part of 1 Samuel. And God, as God raises up new leaders, and he shows once again both his blessing and his judgment. Now, through Moses, Joshua, different judges, Samuel, Blessing and judgment, both. Think about our memory verse. If you remember back to Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, who will by no means clear the guilty. So see the picture here. God the king is both merciful and just, which is why we see God's judgment in sobering ways, whether it's the plagues in Egypt or scenes of judgment in the time of the judges. At the same time, we see God's blessing in awesome ways. God remembers his people in Egypt. He hears their cries. He delivers them from slavery. He brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where he gives them his word and he promises to dwell among them, which leads us to place. God says, I'm going to be with you as my people in a tabernacle. And God outlines what this tabernacle should look like. This portable tent, basically, with an area at the center of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, shaped like a cube that symbolizes the glory of God's presence with his people. Only the high priest at special times is able to enter into the Holy of Holies, this place where God, the king, dwells with his people. God gives them his law, regulations for worship in Leviticus. In Numbers, they rebel against him end up wandering in the desert until an entire generation passes away and a new one rises up led by Joshua to enter into the promised land, which they do. And in it all, God's glory is made known to all peoples through his deliverance. As God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, he says, the nations will know that I am the Lord. That phrase, so they or you will know that I'm the Lord, occurs 50 times from Genesis to Numbers. God brings them into the promised land it says, get rid of all the foreign gods there. Reflect my glory to the surrounding nations. God, as king, is bringing his people to his place for his purpose. Yet, God's people rebel against him as king. They say, we want a human king like other nations. So God gives them what they want. Mark it down. It's a frightening thing when God gives sinful people what they want which leads to the united monarchy where we see God's blessing and judgment now exemplified among his people through kings like Saul and David and Solomon. You look at all three of these earthly kings and you'll see God's blessing and judgment. God's blessing most clear in his covenant promise to David to bring about an eternal king one day through David's line. And one of the key parts of God's promises to David and Solomon pertains to a place where God promises to bless them in order that they might build a temple for God's glory to dwell among his people. 
So Solomon builds a temple where people can encounter the glory of God. This replaces the tabernacle. It's a temple with various courts, a court for the nations, the Gentiles, a court for Jewish women, a court for Jewish men. And again, at the center is the Holy of Holies, this cube-like area in the middle of the temple that symbolizes God's holy presence with his people. And again, only the high priest can enter on certain occasions into that most holy place. And in all of this, we see God's glory made known to all peoples through his anointing on these kings and on this place. Speaking of the temple, 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43 says, all the nations will hear of your great name and your mighty hand, and all the peoples of the earth will know your name and fear you. That's what the purpose of the temple is, so that all the peoples of the earth might know the name of God and fear him. As we continue on, though, the people of God yet again rebel against him, including kings and citizens of the kingdom, which eventually leads to a divided monarchy where God's people are divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah with all sorts of kings, most of them very evil. And as a result, we see God the king showing his blessing and judgment through prophets who foretell God's coming judgment upon God's people, who prophesy that other nations are gonna invade Israel and Judah and take the people into captivity Yet at the same time, they bring good news that if God's people will repent, God will relent and show them mercy, but they don't listen. And in time, the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, including Jerusalem, the place where the temple is located. Yet even though the temple, the dwelling place of God among his people is destroyed, God the king is still with his people. He is with them now in exile, where God sustains them and strengthens them as they're taken from their land. God promises to restore them and eventually bring them back to their land. And God the king does so, brings them back to Jerusalem and in it all, God's glory is made known to all peoples through his discipline of his people. God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will show the holiness of my great name, the name you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. And God promises in Isaiah 60 that there will be a day in the future when his light will shine and his glory will rise upon them and nations will come to that light. And all throughout these prophets, God promises to bring about their restoration, the restoration of his people through another king who will come. But this king will be different than all those before him. The prophet Isaiah says about this king that he will be a child born and a son given and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament says the Lord himself will suddenly come and he does. After 400 years of silence, God the King does the unthinkable. God the King comes himself in the person of Jesus. God's blessing and judgment exemplified and exalted through Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate prophet, the perfect priest, and the promised king. Do you see the significance now of what we celebrate at Christmas? The king has come to us. The king has come to bring judgment and to show mercy. This is God among his people. The word for that in the Bible is incarnation. God in the flesh. 
John 1 says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the same word that's used for tabernacle in the Old Testament. Only here, it refers to a person, not a tent. John 2 says Jesus is the temple, the place where God and man unite as one. Jesus is the temple. He's the dwelling place of God. Jesus is God the King living in the flesh among sinful people so that God's glory might be made known to all peoples through his salvation. Oh, see it. Jesus changes everything in history. Jesus comes on the scene and does what no one else had ever done or would ever do. He lives a life with no sin in him. And then even though he has no sin to die for, he chooses to die on a cross to pay the price, the payment for sinners like you and me. Jesus dies for our sin Then he rises from the dead, defeating sin and the grave, making it possible for all people everywhere to be reconciled to God the King. Jesus changes everything in history. He makes it possible for sinners everywhere in all the nations to be forgiven of their sin and be restored to relationship with God, relationship with the King. Jesus makes it possible for you, right where you are sitting, to become citizens of the kingdom in relationship with God the King. Don't miss the point of Christmas. The King has come to make that reality possible. Yet at the beginning of Acts, the King leaves. Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection so that he might send his spirit upon his people, which leads to the present depicted in the New Testament from Acts to Jude, leading up even to today when God's blessing and judgment are shown through his church, beginning in Acts, spanning the rest of the New Testament, continuing today where Jesus is the judge of all and everyone's eternity is dependent upon how people respond to Jesus. And all who turn from sin and self and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord become members of his church And there's no longer any tabernacle or temple because God is now dwelling not just with his people, but God is dwelling in his people, in our bodies. So the New Testament teaches that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where the glory of God dwells. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are a Christian, God's spirit dwells inside of you. Not in this temple or that tabernacle. In you, you are the temple. And the church together, Ephesians 2 says, is the dwelling place of God. God's spirit dwells among us even as we gather right now. God is with us. And now the nations don't come to a physical building to see the glory of God. No, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we go to the nations declaring the glory of God. This is the purpose of the church, God's glory proclaimed to all peoples. What we say to each other every week at the end of our gatherings, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, knowing that I am with you always. Do you see it? We have been commissioned by this king to proclaim his kingdom. You realize what this means. Like start to see yourself, Christian, in this story. You and I are in a long line, in a line that began with creation, 
with God and a people and a place for a purpose leading all the way to now where God is dwelling in this people like we are the place and we have a purpose to spread his glory and proclaim his kingdom to all peoples. So don't waste your life on any lesser purpose. Spend your life following the king and proclaiming his kingdom to all peoples until one day we will come to the new creation. Now, so read with me in Revelation chapter 21. Now, in light of this story, let's see how it all ties together. Revelation chapter 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Oh, see it. The culmination of this story of a kingdom where we see God's final blessing and judgment, where all people, including every person within the sound of my voice, young and old alike, will either experience God's blessing or God's judgment for all of eternity. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's finish out the picture. For all who receive God's blessing, they will find themselves in God's place, heaven, a place of eternal fellowship with God. Look, look down with me in Revelation chapter 21, verse 15. So we read... The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So we could keep going on, but some people read this and think, okay, so this is the architecture of what heaven looks like. Just figure out numbers, calculate the measurements, try to picture it. But if we focus too much on the details here, we may miss the big picture point because the picture we have here in Revelation is a collision of images. It's a city, it's a new heaven, a new earth, it's a bride, and it's a temple. And you look at these measurements and you realize that heaven is shaped, described here like a cube. And you wonder, well, why would that be? And then you remember back 
the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament where the dwelling place of God among his people in the Holy of Holies was shaped like a what? Like a cube. And you put these measurements together and it hits you. This is like one giant, massive Holy of Holies. And you realize that's the point. The point of heaven is that we are going to dwell in the perfect presence of God. All of us. Not just select people like the high priest in the Old Testament. Every single person who is trusted in Jesus will have eternal fellowship with God. Which is what we read in verse four. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. This is where we have to be really careful. People start talking about mansions in heaven and how, what's your mansion gonna look like? And mine's gonna have this or that. And we start talking, thinking about all the things like heaven's gonna be a place where we have just all the finest amenities of this world. Like, don't be so materialistic in your thinking. God is not trying to compete with economic prosperity in the West. The point of heaven is not that we will have all the things we can imagine from this world. The point of heaven is that all the things we can imagine in this world will not compare with the fact that we are with God. And if all we want is more things, then we'll miss the whole point. The point of heaven is not we have more stuff. The point of heaven is we want God. If you want stuff and more than God, then you've missed the whole point. It's the dwelling place of God with his people where we will all be gathered for his purpose. God's glory enjoyed by all peoples. Keep going here in Revelation 21. Look down at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Do you see it? Just like Isaiah had prophesied, all the nations, all the peoples will enjoy the light of God's presence. Revelation 7, 9 describes a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages who will enjoy eternal fellowship with God forever and ever. You turn to the last chapter. You gotta see this. Revelation chapter 22, verse one. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of what? Life. That's the first time we see it since Genesis 3. Remember, we read it, Genesis 3, 24, flaming sword, keeping man and woman from the tree of life. Now, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything a curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Life for people from all the nations. This is where all of eternity is headed, which then leads to your life, your story, right where you were sitting, and the king. And the decision every one of us must make. So now I'll come back to the notes there in the bulletin. In light of this story, every single one of us in this room and other campuses must decide between one of two options. One, we can gladly surrender to the rule of Jesus the King. 
Revelation 21, seven, you can trust in Jesus to make you a citizen of the kingdom. Or number two, you can ultimately rebel against the rule of Jesus the king. Revelation 21, eight, you can turn from Jesus and find your portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So please see this picture here in Revelation. For all who rebel against Jesus, you will spend your life in separation from God on earth. Separation from the king who created you. The king who knows what is best for you. The king who made you and loves you and desires your good. For all who rebel against Jesus, you will spend your life in separation from God on earth and then you will experience an eternity of never-ending judgment in hell. Which may sound like strong language and I know it's politically incorrect language, but you read the book of Revelation and you will see horrifying pictures of holy judgment that are coming upon all who turn from Jesus. And these words may sound unloving, but I would maintain that if the Bible is true, then these are the most loving words I could say right now. Like God in his word is telling us out of love for us, out of love for you, that never ending judgment of hell, in hell is coming for every single person who rebels against Jesus. So I wanna plead with you today to surrender your life to Jesus. And surrender is the right word not just to give intellectual assent to Jesus, to believe that Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says that even demons believe that and they will be in hell forever. The Bible beckons us to surrender to Jesus, to trust in Jesus as Lord of our lives and to do so gladly. Why? Because for all who surrender to Jesus, you will spend your life in communion with God on earth. Reconciled, restored to relationship with the king who gives life. The king who loves you and knows what is best for your life so you can live as a citizen of his kingdom in a day-to-day -day relationship with God the king where you come into the king's presence any time for anything you need. And not only in relationship with the king, but as an ambassador for the king, as his representative to other people in the world in need of his love all around you and all around the world. As part of a unique community of the king called the church, made up of men and women from all nations saved by his grace to enjoy his goodness, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and planting communities of the king. Just like we saw earlier, more and more churches among all nations. This is what it means to spend your life in communion with God on earth and then to experience an eternity of ever-increasing joy in heaven. Did you hear it? Revelation 21, 6, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's a picture of joy that is free and joy that is full. Psalm 1611 said, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
forever increasing joy. You ever find yourself experiencing so much joy doing something you think, I don't want this to end. That is how the Bible depicts heaven. The difference is it never ends. It will get better and better and better because God's goodness is infinite, which means there will always be more and more and more to enjoy. Where we will be as priests in the temple with perfect unhindered access to God. The Bible depicts us in heaven as a bride with her husband. Like the language here in Revelation 19 and 21 is like the joy of a wedding. Like no husband stands at the front of the church on his wedding day, looks at the back of the room emotionless when his wife walks out and says, hmm, there she is. No, those doors in the back swung open. I about jumped out of my shoes thinking, that's my wife. That's the picture of joy here as a bride and a husband, as participants in a banquet, as children of a father and as heirs of a king. Do you realize this? The king of the universe is your dad. And he is preparing a kingdom for you where we will be with him. We will behold him. Revelation 22.4 contains what I would say are the five most beautiful words in all of the Bible. They will see his face. We will see him. We will serve him, be served by him. The Bible depicts God, the king, serving you and me. In the words of Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. He will serve us as we reign with him and rest in him. No more striving against sin in a world of suffering. No more sorrow. No more tears, no more pain. Revelation 21, I was meditating on this this morning. Like, there will be tears that will last until that day, but they will not last beyond that day. Our bodies will be resurrected. Our souls will be satisfied. Our desires will be perfect and all creation will be restored. Remember, the Bible does not picture heaven as some boring place where we float on clouds and sing songs while we stare at light for a few quadrillion years. This is not endless choir practice we are going to. This is a place where we're going to experience the fulfillment of all of our desires in a new earth where we will have a kingdom to rule, a universe to explore, and friends to enjoy from every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. Living, loving, working, and worshiping together. I love the way C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis ends his last paragraph in the last book of the Narnia series. He writes, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, is only the beginning of a story where every single chapter will be 
better than the one before. So I want to invite everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I want to ask you a question right where you're sitting. It is the most important question I could possibly ask you. And I want to ask you to answer it honestly just before God. That's why I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Like, but before God, I ask you this question. Have you surrendered your life to the rule of Jesus the King? Have you surrendered your life to the rule of Jesus the King? It's the most important question in the world and not just here, but for all of eternity. And if your heart does not resound with a yes and answer that question, I want to invite you, urge you to surrender to Jesus today. Like you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the rest of today. In this moment, I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus, to surrender gladly your heart to Jesus. Just to say to him right where you're sitting right now, to say, dear God, I am a sinner and I need you to save me from my sins. And today I trust that Jesus died on the cross for me. And today I want to surrender to him as my king. I want to be restored to relationship with you. Now and for all of eternity, I gladly submit to Jesus as king of my life. With our heads still bowed, if you just prayed that to God, I want to invite you to do something. In this room, at other campuses, I want to invite you with heads bowed and eyes closed, just before God, would you just lift up your hand if you are saying, I am trusting in Jesus as King today. I'm surrendering to Jesus as King. Amen. Just lift up your hand if you're saying, yes, I'm surrendering to Jesus as King. <laughs> oh God, for hands in this room and campuses where I can't see, I praise you for those who are experiencing new life in your kingdom. I praise you for doing what I've been praying just all week long. Bring people here today who are under your judgment in sin to receive your mercy in Christ in a way that we will worship you together for all of eternity. All glory be to your name. And I pray, I pray that you would give them and others who have not been baptized courage to celebrate new life in Jesus through baptism to say today putting on one of these shirts, just stepping to that pool and saying, yes, my life is identified with the king of history. My life is surrendered to him. And God, I pray that in light of all that we walked through, not just today, but for many of us over this last year, that we would live as part of this story, as citizens of your kingdom, as ambassadors of you, our king, proclaiming the good news of your kingdom right here in greater Washington, D.C. Oh God, may your kingdom come. May the good news of your kingdom be spread across this city, we pray. 
and to the ends of the earth. Even as we pray continually like you've taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And we cry with Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We look forward to the day when we will see your face. And we pray that you would help us by your grace to live with hopeful obedience from this day until that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you would like to find more resources on similar topics of today's sermon, like the second coming of Christ, hope and perseverance, and redemptive history, you can find all that and more at our website, radical.net. There you'll even find the free downloadable discussion questions that accompany every sermon. And while you're there, don't forget to download our free 2019 Advent Reading Guide. This guide provides 25 days of readings that began yesterday, December 1st, and will end on Christmas Day, but it is not too late to join us. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at Radical.net.